Let's look in John chapter 4 tonight. John chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be looking in verse 40. John chapter 4 and verse 40. And you'll see in this passage a reference to the Savior of the world in an unusual place. John chapter 4 and verse 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, hopefully hopefully you're familiar with what's going on in John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4 is the famous encounter with Jesus at the woman at the well, with the woman at the well. It was in John chapter 4 that Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. I have to go through Samaria. This was not the usual path that they took. Uh, There was a very well-traveled way, an easy way, much safer way uh, that went through predominantly Jewish-held territory uh, that would have followed the Jordan River Valley uh, up into Galilee. Uh, Once you pass the Jericho Road that went down and where there's room for just two and got down there to Jericho and turned up north uh, going uh, down through the River Valley. It was easy walking. It was easy way to travel. Samaria was a place you didn't go through unless you had to. You know, I've got a few places like that in, in my lifetime. I've run across and, and stuff. There was a time, uh, no offense to anybody who might be watching from there, but there was a time that, that I treated Perryville that way. I don't know if y'all have ever been to Perryville. Some of our folks are from the Perryville, Perry County kind of area, uh, but I got two tickets and two trips through there. And uh, I decided that I wouldn't go that way anymore. I didn't go through Perryville unless I had to. And I didn't have to very often. And when I do go, hmm, I make sure that I'm not doing anything that I can get a ticket for in Perryville and Perry County. I probably shouldn't have said that. But it slipped out. You didn't go through Samaria unless you had to. So when Jesus said, I've got to go through Samaria, they understood there was something compelling. And that something was this woman. Uh, We know how the story unfolded, how that Jesus asked her for a drink. Such an innocent question. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, being a Samaritan woman? Um... But Jesus said, if you would have known who I was, you would have asked me for a drink. Well, how could you give me a drink? You don't have anything to draw with. You didn't even bring a bucket. How, <laughs> how could you give me a drink? Oh, but Jesus talked to her about that living water. You remember how the story transpired. I, if, whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever shall drink of the water that I give him shall never, not never, thirst again. Double negative in Greek, bad English, but great Greek. Uh, never, not never, thirst again, Jesus said. 
Well, she perceived very quickly that Jesus was a prophet when he told her to go call her husband. And, of course, she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you've spoken well because you have five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. Uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. She said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is a place to worship. Nothing like a good religious argument to divert attention away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus would not be persuaded. And as time went on, she came to believe, oh, I know that the Messiah is coming. When the Messiah is coming, when the Messiah comes, then he'll show us everything. He'll answer all of our questions. Everything will be clear to us when the Messiah comes. Jesus made an amazing statement. I that speak unto you am he. I am the Messiah. Well, people everywhere were asking him that question, and he wasn't answering. He wasn't giving him a clear answer, but here he did. And every time I read through John 4, I'm amazed. Why, why here? Why Samaria? Why her? Why an isolated woman? Why here? Why her would this amazing revelation come? I that speak unto you am he. Well, the woman left her water pot and went back to the city. She had something more compelling and more important to do. She went back saying, come see a man who told me all things whatsoever ever I'd done. Is not this the Christ? And many believed on her because, many believed on Jesus because of her story and her testimony. Is not this the Christ? But then another amazing thing happens. And that plays out in our text tonight in John chapter 4 and verse 40. So the Samaritans came to him and they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Did I mention this was Samaria? Did I mention the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans? Jesus stayed there two whole days days and those Samaritans had two days with Jesus they listened to him he taught them he preached to them he talked to them now the Samaritans you remember were hated by the Jews because uh, during the occupation uh, of the Babylonians the Babylonians brought people in there and they inhabited the land some of the Jews were allowed to stay there and and they all intermarried uh, they picked up the religious idolatry of the northern kingdom. You remember Jeroboam had set up uh, these uh, golden calves. They brought them back all the way, no doubt, from Aaron and Moses in the wilderness. Or not Moses, but Aaron in the wilderness when he made that golden calf. Here they are again and bringing them back. And they set up those abominable idols in the mountain of Samaria. And there they worshipped. And the Samaritans had picked up on all of that. And their life was a hodgepodge of religious belief and of, of ideas and expressions and, and just hated, rejected by the Jewish people. But Jesus saw that as a place for ministry as he stayed there for two days and preached to them and taught them about the truth that they so desperately needed to hear. There was a time in my life when I was taught that Jesus had nothing to do with anybody except the people of Israel. But I, I, I tell you, I just started reading the Gospels and I figured out real quickly that was not the case. 
Uh, Jesus went into a lot of Gentile areas, and he spent a lot of time among the Gentile peoples, most notably the the Decapolis, the ten cities uh, of the Galilean region. Jesus spent a lot of time with Gentile people. And the amazing thing is that whenever Jesus got around Gentile people, you know what happened? (laughs) Lots of folks got saved. That's what happened. They were very open to him. Remember, the Bible spoke of the stone that the builders rejected. He came into his own, John says, but his own received him not. I've I've, I've told you the story before, but I have to remind you about it tonight because somebody might not have heard it. Remember the Syrophoenician woman uh, that Jesus said, uh, uh, it's not fit, it's not right to give the children's meat uh, to the dogs. You remember him saying that? Oh, oh, but she said to Jesus, oh, but even the dogs get the crumbs. Now, we always think that Jesus insulted that woman, uh, but she didn't take what he said as an insult. Uh, She said, yes, that's true. You do not give the children's meat to dogs. But if the kids won't eat it, what do you do with it? Feed it to the dogs. That woman was perceptive. She understood that the Jews, those were the children. And they were rejecting what Jesus was offering. And what she said to him, what incredible faith and insight on her part. She said, listen, the children, the Jews aren't giving. They're not taking what you're offering. Give it to us. Give it to me. I'll take it. And she did. She got what she asked for. But we saw that repeated over and over and over and over again. Even, you see, while Jesus was here, he was emphasizing that he was a Savior for the whole world. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But to them that received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. To as many as received him. Another great example of this right here in John chapter 4. And the Samaritans, the Samaritans then coming to that amazing conclusion. You know, Jesus is not going to just be the Jewish Savior. Not just going to be the Judean Savior. He's the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Two days of preaching brought them to that conclusion. We might think perhaps Jesus is teaching and preaching if he was here in this world today. And if he could preach and teach as he did then. Uh, We know of no miracle that Jesus performed there. Nothing. I mean, yes, he told the Samaritan woman all that she had ever done. But. There probably was a lot of people in that town who could have told all that that Samaritan woman had done. Jesus worked no miracle in that town. Do you understand? It was just his preaching. Just his preaching. His teaching that convinced them this man is the Savior of the world. We might think then that if Jesus could come into the world today and, and if we could actually hear him teach and preach that The world would turn to him. But we have to think then also about that rejection. The rejection that was there when he was here. 
And even the rejection that is to come in the millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus lives and reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And after a thousand years, the Bible says that Satan is going to be released for just a little while. And he'll gather an army like the sands of the sea. Where does he get that army? Millions of people will live in the millennial reign of Christ in a world of peace when Jesus Christ is here and reigning on the throne of his father David and yet they'll not believe on him. It's amazing. But God has sent Jesus in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14. The aged apostle writes, We know and we do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. When I got this passage on my mind, I went back through some of my files and I looked back at a message that I'd preached back in 2007. And I found a quote, I don't mean to quote myself, but I'm really not. It was a quote from Time magazine uh, that was published, an article that was published back in 2007 uh, asking the question, can we save the world by 2015? If you want to read that article, it is still available. Do a Google search. It'll pop it right up there for you. Time magazine, can we save the world by 2015? Interesting article. I read it again this week. I want to share a little bit about what it says. The Nobel Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC for short, of the United Nations clearly stated that 2015 would be the absolute latest we could hope to save the world. After 2015, the article suggested it was too late. Well, I'll admit 2020 has been a little tough. (laughs) But we're not underwater yet, you know, we'd have to say. I've talked to you before about climate change. Yes, the glaciers are melting. It's hard for us to say that uh, something's not happening to the climate. Ask any duck hunter. They'll tell you the duck hunters have changed their flight patterns. Something's happening to the world. Amen? I mean, something's happening. If the icebergs are melting and the ducks ducks ain't flying like they used to, then something weird is happening. I believe it. Something's happening. We've had kind of a... Record-breaking year for hurricanes almost, or at least a pretty big one. Wild year. Something's happening to the climate. I don't know what it is. But I know the one who controls the climate. We can't fix the weather, but I know the one who can and who does. But it was interesting to see, you know, 2015 is the deadline. By then, it's too late. It's just an interesting article. When God set out to save the world, he did not send us a climatologist. Although, you understand as I do, that Jesus could have done that. Do you understand that? I mean, Jesus was God in the flesh. He could have done anything. We say to our kids sometimes, well, you can do anything. No, they can't. I'm sorry. No, they can't. But Jesus Christ really could have done anything and been anything. You want the statesman, the governmental authority who would rule the world and fix the world's problem? Jesus could have done that. You want to wipe out poverty? Jesus could have done that. I mean, my goodness, he he brought gold coins out of a fish's mouth. On command. Just catch the hook out there. You want some money? 
You need to pay your taxes. Drop your line overboard, okay? We can put a fish up there to spit up gold coins. He could have brought 10,000 of them up with 10,000 gold coins. You know that. He could have fixed poverty. World hunger, he made five loaves, two fishes feed 5,000 people. That's a pretty good day. He could have dealt with world hunger. He could have fixed all the illnesses that everybody had. He could have stopped COVID-19. And all the COVIDs before and all the COVIDs after. And he didn't even have to leave heaven in order to do it. He could have done that. What did God send Jesus to do? He sent Jesus to deal with the world's greatest problem. Sin. Sin. He could have done anything else. Instead, he went to the cross and died to deal with the sin problem. He chose to die when he didn't have to. Death had no reign over his life because sin had no presence in my life. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life freely that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And you say, anybody in the world has the power to give their life like Jesus said. No, they don't. No, they don't. And the reason is because only Jesus had the ability to choose death. You and I don't have that choice. Death's going to come. The rapture may intervene. Aside from that, we're going to die. That's the reality. We don't have any choice about it. That choice has already been made for us. It is set and settled. It is appointed unto man once to die. We don't get to choose whether we'll die or not like Jesus did. Jesus did have that choice. Sin had never marred his body. Therefore, he made that choice. And he did. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. You see, that's what God sent him to do. To deal with the sins of the whole world. But somehow that message had to be spread, and it was. Jesus wasn't always going to be here like he was to spend two days in a little village in Samaria with a bunch of Samaritans, teaching them, preaching to them, so that they were absolutely convinced after two days that they were in the presence of the Savior of the world. 100% 100% believe. But John gave us an interesting statement there that we mentioned a moment ago in 1 John chapter 4 when he said, We know and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I, I want to talk about then tonight for just a few moments the testimony uh, to the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And the first thing that we'll see, and it's presented in Acts chapter 10, in that great passage when Simon Peter was talking to Cornelius in verse 43, he said to him, Give all the prophets witness that through his name, that is the name of Jesus, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. 
See, long before Jesus was born, the prophets gave a very detailed description of Jesus Christ that could only have been the work of the Holy Spirit. He gave us a very clear picture of who the Messiah was and and what he would do. Jesus would say of John the Baptist, among those risen among men or born of women, uh, there has not arisen one greater than John. Among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John. And yet it was John the Baptist who sent his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we keep on looking for another? That's John the Baptist. Well, Jesus wasn't intimidated by John the Baptist's questions, and he's not intimidated by ours either. So he just said to the disciples of John, said, well, y'all just sit there a little while and watch. And then he told them, you go back and you tell John then what you have heard and what you have seen. Tell him about how that the lame walk and the blind see and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and to the poor the gospel is preached. And the reason why he mentioned every single one of those things is because every one of them was revealed by the prophets to be a characteristic of the Messiah. He knew John the Baptist knew the prophets. And so Jesus appealed to the witness of the prophets Because they had given a very, very clear picture. A picture that only Jesus Christ could match. On September the 19th, 1910, a man named Clarence Hiller was murdered by an intruder. He was woken in the middle of the night. He heard the screams of his wife and child. He, he ran and, and, attacked and pounced on the intruder. They rolled down the stairs of their apartment. Uh, three shots rang out. The intruder fled. The man was left dead. The police arrested a man named Thomas Jennings. He had blood on his clothing and a pistol on his person of the kind that was used to kill Mr. Clarence Hiller. The Chicago police were intent on convicting Jennings and the telling evidence came because it just happened that Mr. Hiller had painted the trim on his house and on his windows on the day of the murder. And in his haste to escape then, Mr. Jennings had left his fingerprints on the still drying paint. Remember, this was 1910. His conviction was challenged. His conviction was upheld for the fact that we take for granted today the validity of fingerprint evidence to produce a telling signature for every individual on the planet. It was interesting that the defense attorney in the course of the trial challenging this new fingerprinting evidence put his finger on a piece of paper and challenged the police department to produce an imprint of his fingerprint. Guess what? (laughs) They did. That was 1910. They did. We take it for granted that everybody has their own set of fingerprints. We take it for granted that such evidence can be used, but then it was all new. I mention that to you tonight because the Holy Spirit put his fingerprint 
on the scriptures and that fingerprint matches only one person who can be the savior of the world and that is Jesus Christ. It is absolutely unique, absolutely irrefutable. There was only one who could fulfill this. There were times specific prophecies that were given like Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks and the time period pointed to the year of the birth of Jesus Christ. The wise men from Babylon who regarded Daniel highly recognized what it meant when they saw his star appear because Daniel was highly regarded and they knew that it was time for those prophecies to be fulfilled in the king of the Jews to be born. We might expect that the Jews would be persuaded by these articles, by these arguments. But listen, it was, uh, I think, a preface, a preview of what was to come when Herod instead decided to kill all the little babies, boy babies, that had been born in Bethlehem for the last two years. Oh, they didn't believe. But in spite of its rejection by the experts... The message of the prophets is still there. There's an indisputable witness to Jesus Christ as his being the Savior of the world. And that is the witness of the prophets. As as Simon Peter so faithfully said in Acts chapter 10, Unto him give all the prophets witness. But we also mention tonight the witness of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 32. Uh, they said, we are witnesses to these things. And so is also the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We are witnesses to these things. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, the son of God. His life and his death and his resurrection and his miracles all served to back up his claim. But Jesus wasn't just giving good advice about living, although a lot of people want to relegate the ministry of Jesus Christ today to like he's some kind of uh, a special counselor or something. He is the wonderful counselor, according to Isaiah, but there's much more to it than that. Because, you see, everything that Jesus had to say hinges on who he was. He claimed to be the Son of God. If he was not the Son of God, he was a liar or a lunatic or both. These men were with him throughout all of his ministry here. And after all of that, they were able to say, we are his witnesses to these things. You see, the words of Jesus Christ are God's words. His message is trustworthy. It is a basis upon which I can confidently live my life and give my life to it. I can trust him with not only my life, but also my eternity, my life after death. It means that God has personally become acquainted with the frailties of human life and existence. Not that God didn't know everything ahead of time and didn't know already. But we can never look at God and say, you don't know what it's like because he does know what it's like. He knows what it's like to go to bed tired at night and be awakened and then have to go right back at it. He knows. He knows what it's like to face hunger and thirst and deprivation. He didn't have to. Remember, Jesus could do anything. He didn't have to. The devil was right when he said, you could command these stones to be bread and they would be. The devil knew it. He could have. He never had to go hungry, but he chose to. He never had to do without. He never had to lay his head down with a rock for a pillow and not have a house or a roof over his head. He didn't have to. 
He could have. But he chose that. So that no matter how dire our situations may become, he knows how it feels. I've always been appreciative of the fact that at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. There's something about serving the God who cries. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. The apostles were his witnesses and are his witnesses to these things because they have given us his testimony. They were his jury and they gave the verdict. We are witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's one more witness to this truth. Simon Peter, returning to Acts chapter 10, Simon Peter said to him, give all the prophets witness that through his name, look at that word, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. You see, if you're saved tonight in this building or you're saved at home sitting watching us on television or on YouTube or, or, or however you're watching us, if you're saved, then you can also give witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is a Savior of the world. It's the best kind of witness at all. He saved me. How do you know he's a Savior of the world? He saved me. The promise of forgiveness and remission of sins is made through believing on the name of Jesus Christ. It means that we've been pardoned. We've been released from bondage or imprisonment so that the penalty of sin is taken away. God set out, you see, to save the world. And he sent the world a Savior. And then the Savior sends saved people into the world to tell his story, the story of, his, of Jesus. We tell of his virtuous life, of his vicarious death, of his victorious resurrection. It is a story that never changes, but it's a story that we never get tired of hearing or of telling. My favorite movie is True Grit. I've told you that before, but I'll tell you again tonight. True Grit, John Wayne, the real one, not the fake one that came out a few years later. I'm talking about the real True Grit, the real Rooster Cogburn, John Wayne. I've watched that movie, I don't know how many times. I own that movie. I've I've watched it over and over and over again. I never get tired of it for some reason. Hearing that young lady with the funny accent talk about Dardanelle and Yale County and seeing old Ned Pfeffer and That's bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. I, I, I could go through the whole movie. I've seen it over and over and over I never get tired of it but as much as I like true grit and I like it a lot it pales in comparison to the story of Jesus I've told it over and over again I never get tired of telling it and it doesn't matter whether it's this part of where he calmed the storm or whether it's like tonight and the, uh, dealing with the woman at the well 
whether it's him turning the water into wine or raising Lazarus from the dead, I can tell those stories. I can tell them over and over and over and over again. I never get tired. I never get tired of telling the story about how Jesus went to the cross and took my sin and my death. I never get tired of it. And I know you don't either. We are witnesses, you see, to these things. To what things? The fact that God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. To those of you watching at home, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's never a better time than right now. Maybe you don't understand. I know you can't walk an aisle. You can't come and talk to me. Or, but please send me a text. I'd love to talk to you, even if only by phone. I can stand out in your yard with social distance, and I can share scripture with you. I'd love to talk to you about how that Jesus Christ won't just be the Savior of the world, but he'll be your Savior, just like he's my Savior. And he's many other people in this building's Savior tonight. He'll be your Savior. Because, you see, the Bible tells us that Jesus is it will forgive all of the world of their sins. He is the Savior, the propitiation for the sins of all the world. But especially of those that believe. Because the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world doesn't mean anything unless to you, unless you receive it. Unless you receive Him as your Savior by repenting of your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, asking Him to be your Savior. And that message, though true, though real, will not make a difference in your life until you receive it. He offers you a free pardon of sin. But that pardon must be accepted. And it can be rejected. Don't reject him tonight. Receive him as your Savior. Let's stand together, please.